0: hope well finds message you finds message this message i well you finds you i hope well hope message this i you this this well finds you finds you hope you this i well
1: Welcome to another episode of I Hope This Message Finds You Well. My name is Chris Ditto and with me is my friend and colleague Eloise Wheatman. Today we share an excerpt from a longer conversation we did with Joey Tang in April 2021.
2: Joey Tang is a Hong Kong-born American curator, artist, writer in no hierarchical order. He began working alongside artists at the Notary Public in 2010 in his New York City apartment while a graduate student at New York University. Joey was arts editor of literary journal N Plus One, curator at Palais de Tokyo in Paris and director of exhibitions at Biela Gallery at Columbus College of Art and Design. Most recently, he curated exhibitions at Centre Pompidou in Paris, Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia and Futuria
1: Center of Contemporary Art in Prague.
2: I hope this message finds you well.
1: Just before we met with Eloise, like I asked her, and then I was like, oh, and actually, we can ask you, uh, if you consider yourself an artist who curates or a curator who is also an artist or an artist who is also a curator, like, what is the relationship between these two roles and how you see your practice unfolding uh, yeah. in this constellation?
3: When I was working at Pali Tokyo in 2014-15, that was my first um, time working in an institution. And I was previously part of a sort of citywide project that Pali Tokyo initiated in 2013, which um, was focusing on this idea of the artist curator. And so there were... A constellation of shows at Tokyo, but also in different galleries in paris so i was um, I curated one of the these projects in in the gallery at um Pasd and so when I started this position at Tokyo, i I still had i still had a a practice a you know a kind of non studio practice of some sort I was still showing my work and um, I really thought that I, I would have to stop making art or, um, mainly because there, I wouldn't have any time. Um, because my job would be very, was very demanding where I had to, to do quite a lot of travel and produce a show in, in nine months with, um, artists from, from China specifically. So I have to do the research and then. You know, do this show, but it turned out that I, I had uh, a solo gallery show at, at the gallery who, um, in Paris, who I worked with, um, uh, Joseph Tang, who is not, we're not related actually, but I can tell you more about that. Maybe I can, you know, this would be the space to really clarify to all the, all the people out there that we're not the same person. We're not brothers or. He's not my dad, or you know I think there are other rumors there too um but um, but I really thought that because of the the responsibilities at Pai Tokyo, I would have there's no way that I can concentrate on on making my own work, but what I found out was that through the many studio visits I was doing that year, I think I did like over a hundred like twenty or more. In, you know, I think it was like 12, 14 cities or something, some very short, some like, you know, hours long. So they're not they were not all very involved, all the same um, duration um, in terms of the studio visit time. But that was quite a lot of work. And I actually that experience actually reinforced my it gave me a way to insist on my own art practice. One of the fears as an artist curator is once you're meeting artists and you're working with artists, you, you or I started, I thought I would start to question my own work, you know, both my commitment to my own work, but also, you know, the way that what, what's my work as an artist? But I think that research, the, those trips actually showed me that, you know, there is something within my own work that I that's uniquely mine let's say that I was dealing with very kind of concerns that are very specific to my practice maybe another way to say it is that I didn't feel like worried about like there was no I was worried that it would sort of like absorb what I see and then like it will kind of you know to infiltrate my practice and then I It would be very embarrassing to, you know, like, you know, the worst thing is to take on, take on someone's ideas, right? Like that's something you saw in a studio. And then now it's like, you know, in your work, you know, that we all kind of hear stories about that, like in schools or, you know, between teachers and students and things like that. But that didn't like those fears actually were quickly dissipated because I, um, yeah, I found that there was something in my work. So I did a solo show at Joseph time and I thought, actually, that was a turning point for me. Um, and I realized that my work was really about um, the boundaries and the limitations, but also the possibility of, of time and space um, and the limits of an exhibition um, as a holder of my work. Um, as I was you know planning for um at that time like the biggest kind of in terms of size and duration of planning what I the biggest what was the biggest kind of exhibitions I've ever put together as a curator I was able to actually find my own way of working at, in my art so that was really a turning point so so there I think yeah there they're friends let's say like my art and my curatorial work but they're not you know they can get together but they they're not the same person
2: yeah it's interesting that you use like you were talking about like the limits of time and space of that hold your exhibitions and uh, it is interesting to think about that in terms of like and it, like, perhaps I'm going too far in advance, but into like your work with Fierce Pussy, which to me feels also kind of pushing the limits of time and space. And it was interesting to think about that also in because you uh, mention in your biography about thinking along with artists, which to me seems like a quite an important part of the way that you curate. And I was wondering if you could talk about like what that means actually, and how that, how that, what does that look like? Actually, these long-term relationships also are important.
3: I just wanted to th- find a way to work with, with artists, and I think in general, and trying to find ways to kind of break open some of these, Limitations that institutions put forth uh, for many many reasons that they have to do so, but also I was you know with, with specifically with the members of Fierce Pussy, with um, the artists Nancy Brooks Brody, Carrie Yamoka, Joy Episala, and Zoe Leonard, and maybe briefly about that project is that the four of them uh, formed a collective called um fierce pussy in 1991 as they they initially met at an act up meeting through their work uh, in aids activism and act up stands for AIDS coalition to amish power and they really wanted you know as they were caring for their friends uh who were dying of aids uh, many of them were men and they wanted to find a space to connect with other women identified members of, of ACT UP. Um, and so they form a group, um, together and there were other people founding members as well, but they were, and there are different members through the years, but they were the four core people who have been there since the beginning. And the, the kind of idea or maybe even the limits for the project was really to think about their personal practices as individual artists in and alongside the collective work as Fierce Pussy, which involved many mostly in the beginning public public works with pasting of posters um that are, are used to call out other connect with and call out other queer folks on, you know, in the public space. But I was really I started working with the uh, Nancy, Joy and Carey on another project that, um, centers around the, the techniques of photograms in kind of darkroom residency that I co-founded with the artist Thomas Fougio in the outskirts of Paris. And if you sort of maybe get to know the works of Nancy, Joy, Carey for the first time and Zoe, you know, I personally didn't know that they were part of your species. Like I knew of your species and I knew of them like the The work they make are not immediately uh, visually connected, like the individual, individual work and the collective work. And so this was around 2005 when I approached them to, to think together about ways of, bringing their individual practices in conversation, uh, the resonances between their works, the way they think about materials, surfaces, through many different strategies, including abstraction, including a kind of engagement with time through sculpture, photography, video. And they, I found out that they had never shown their works together as, if, as just the four of them, though they've been in many, many group exhibitions that center around AIDS activism or kind of queer aesthetics, uh, etc. So I thought like that's, you know, one of that's such an obvious thing to do then. And because there are decades of, you know, they've been together as a group for a few decades, one exhibition's not gonna like an exhibition isn't the form. It might not be the form for, um, for bringing them together. Uh, at that time, I would, you know, wasn't thinking about a space specifically. I didn't want the space to determine what we, we would do. So my proposal to them was just to think together and like, like I, maybe it's a talk that we will End up having with them or a book or a dinner. I didn't want to like ask for, I didn't want to ask for things that artists usually are being asked to do. Like I didn't feel like, you know, this idea of performing for the public, you know, they already do so much work for the public. So what's the, what would the engagement with the public mean? And so, and also because I've never worked with the four of them, I, it's, I felt like it's not my, my place to, to propose an exhibition. Like exhibition felt like was the wrong way to go about it. Like because it's a very specific goal post. And if being in the world, it's about moving around through these sort of goal posts, then we must, um, we must think in different ways. So I think. That learning process of working of the work of the artists but also learning how to work together was really important is continuing to it continues to be important since we're um, the project is still ongoing and eventually the project became part of it encompasses exhibitions and in in the process is a book you know and then public talks and Events and performances, etc., but but that was only because I had the opportunity to to work as a, a director of a, a gallery uh, in an art school, and so I, yeah, that became a kind of like thinking through time about again not having a static static exhibition to be able to hold the work that is so dynamic and it's what what being in movement in the world mean. That's one of the kind of like, how can an exhibition um, correspond or communicate or address the ways they, the artists work or how these four artists work, which thinks about the idea of time through series making, series that don't feel like a series, series that are done maybe intermittently, through decades like how do you address that, that kind of making
1: go ahead yeah it, I, it's more like a comment i just yeah. found it very inspiring or sort of i feel this liberation hearing about you know being able to take the space and the time despite the kind of requirements of the general like art world working process or institutional kind of uh, day-to-day business, you know, when the registrar has to do their work, the art handler has to do their work, the show is like two months or three months duration, and then moving on to the next thing, I find it just really inspiring to take that space, which I feel like it's very courageous also to take and claim that space. Um, Yeah, I had a question about the very beginnings. What led you to, or have have you become a curator, or perhaps was it like a natural process, or what when you start When have you started naming yourself a curator also?
3: So the beginning was when I was um, I was going I was getting my MFA degree, my master in art as an artist at New York University um, around 2000 at 2000 in 2009. So 2009 2010, and then 11. And in the begin- in the middle of the two years in new york i uh, you know with student loans and this is right after the two thousand and eight financial crash, where I sort of shifted like I decided i I was already living in New York, and I decided that I wouldn't want to go back to work also, I was working in the magazine industry, which total- totally collapsed in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine Um, so there was no, there were no jobs, um, in the field that I was, um, working in in New York. So the sort of, this is the moment when physical magazines were going through, uh, a shift. So things were starting to be just online. And then there were this question of like, um, you know, if magazines are going to die or something. And so I went back to school and I, Yeah, actually, not sure I would, what, how much I would share about this part. Like, so it was 2009, 2010. So in the summer between the two years, because, you know, yeah, like, where, what do I do? Like, I don't have the resources and money to go somewhere, have student loans. I'm not going to like a vacation or something. So I decided to, and this is the moment where they're starting. I mean, there are different periods in New York of course, through the many, the past decades uh, where the idea of having exhibitions that you're in your home or your apartment or spaces that are temporary were becoming a space where artists work out their ideas. And so I I thought in that summer, I'm going to have a show in my apartment, which was really was quite a, a small space. It was maybe 25 square meter. It was a 25 square meter space on, on, Madison Avenue, which, um, was a space I moved into actually because it was very affordable. It should kind of like maybe clarify that because it's in the neighborhood. It's in the upper east side, the Carnegie Hill neighborhood, which, which normally it's not so affordable, but this specific building, there was like a kind of deli on the ground floor and um, a salon on the second floor. So it was actually very affordable. And it was maybe one of the few buildings um that didn't have like, um like a concierge or something. Actually it was like more affordable than other, some of the other neighborhoods where my, my friends were living in Brooklyn. And so I would have, I thought I would have a show there in that summer. And so I invited, I invited, classmates, artists I met and teachers and, you know, people who came through for studio visits from school. So I did kind of, that was my first show I curated. And I, I think I had a work in it too. So this, in the early years, I would be in some of the projects that I curate usually as a way to kind of be with the artists. So, you know, not like oh I'm a curator but like I'm just putting a show together it's, maybe that's kind of a better way of thinking about what I do it's just putting artworks um, alongside each other and yeah so that was a really kind of critical moment one thing that I did do was I wanted the exhibition to have two parts so what's different about the second part is that some artworks would uh, be moved. But their movements were very minor. And I was very much, um, you know, I, I still think about this film by, um, the Thai filmmaker, Api Chapong Versantiku, his, his film, Blissfully, Blissfully Yours. Which, which essentially I was uh, thinking a lot about this moment when the, the film starts. The film actually starts, well, there's the beginning of the film, and then there's the kind of credits, the beginning credits of the film that starts maybe like 20 minutes into the film. So there's this kind of shift of consciousness that takes place, like, oh, now it really starts, but then does that mean the big, what you just saw was the end, like, that was this very conscious, it, it was longer than usual when, you know, typical, when the movie really starts, so... And at that moment I I thought I was at the middle of the film, but I don't think it was right in the middle. But it felt like that, like it really split something that could loop uh back. Uh the end could look back into the beginning. Um so my idea for for the for my apartment, uh, which was I used I I called it the notary public as a way to think about the function of the notary in the US, which is very different, like you you can go to like a shop that sells paper or something. There'll be the notary there and just like give you the stamp and they don't even look at. I think I had to get something stamped at that time and they don't even look at your papers. They just stamp it. It doesn't have the same status as, as perhaps in France, um, the, the, the role of the notary. And so the idea of was just to split the exhibition in, like in halves and the second half. I, um, there was a dip-take by, by, by an artist, Cody Trapte. One work was slightly smaller than the other one. They looked quite identical. I just kind of swapped the the two. Uh, there was a configuration of works on, about the sofa, which were just moved, you know, rehung. hung There was one work by Heidi Hinrichs, which was uh, a sculpture that was resting on a bookshelf. And then in the second half, it kind of like performs and dangles above the desk. So these small shifts um, that were taking place, there was a work by Kara Bove, who was one of my teachers, where she made these casts of peanut shells and peanuts. So she gave me like a bunch of them. And I, I asked if I could just, you know, do this process of accumulation that like, every week or something there be more peanuts and shells um, on the the mental so i think some of these ideas kind of come back now like in a bigger more expanded way the idea of accumulation the idea of change the idea of imperceptible shifts the idea of moving an artwork from one place to another um which i should say for the project with with Fierce Pussy, some of the artworks, they would move into a different room in a different chapter and artworks would leave and new works would come in. So it's just sort of this constant refreshing of the, the core of what is visible in the exhibition.
2: It's also interesting then, so the project, I think it's called More More Than Than Lovers Lovers. More, more than than friends, friends. The the film endings uh, is interesting. Then also in what you were saying about the picture, a picture upon vertical, uh, and also the last page of of this book. Would you oh, see? Yeah. yeah, it's also really so. It's um, or maybe Joe, you want to explain the project because. This to me would be a really interesting uh, example of when it, uh, something that could be both an artwork and a curated project actually. I don't know which you see it as.
3: Yeah, no, that's really true. This is one, yeah, this is an interesting instance. So the project was actually first installed at Futura in Prague. It was a series of film endings that I asked, maybe, I think there were like 40, 50 people about their favorite film endings, being, you know, someone who who loves watching films, staying till the end, always. I only watch films in cinemas. It's just a space I can actually not be distracted. And that sort of shift of consciousness that happens at, like, you know, the song that doesn't make that they played when the credits roll that has, like, nothing to do sometimes with the film. Like, it's a different energy, it's a different mode of being. Sometimes it's a song that, maybe it's like a, you know, a pop song that, like, seems really incongruent with the film. I've I've always been interested in this moment, like, when, I mean most of the people have left already and then the song that seems to like you know not really doing much to the experience of the film because by then you're all you know leaving the cinema or turned it off already but that somehow pushed one either back into reality or it actually complicates the reality that you like re-enter you know, leaving the cinema in one particular, and sometimes it happens like in the last scene, and it's the song that carries out. So, in in Kiarostami's film *Both* Tabai, the the Bach song uh, "Rhythm of the Night" is this song that I mean, it's one of one of my favorite scenes of film endings, which is this like the character, the protagonist, kind of breaks into a dance with the song in the room full of mirrors. And, and so I was really curious if other people have their own, you know, ending. And I think this was in 2016. So actually my, my father passed away that year. So I was thinking about ending in different ways. And, and maybe one interesting thing that I'm still thinking about. And this isn't a question that you're asking about like the difference between kind of the parameters of being an artist and a curator, but I also think about the parameters of living a life and being a curator too. Like, you know, in retrospect, whether, you know, it's something that, you know, I was able to do, like I was like preparing for an exhibition while, you know, I was caring for my father in the aftermath of, of his death. So like I'm still questioning these things actually now. Um, whether it's like how do those things intersect, right? So I think the ending really came out of this like thinking about other endings, endings that could like lift and push something into a different zone, but also having other people be part of that.
2: I hope this message finds you well.
3: But I wanna read something that I wrote for a book called Shelf Documents or Library as Practice that, um, that was a part of a project with Heide Heinrichs, and it's just an essay where I kind of think about institutions from the vantage point of being in one recently. And this sort of loops back to the way I work with the, the artists from, from Fierce Pussy as well, in thinking about this this idea of the slowness as a way of working which I I was calling it slow programming just for really for it to be understood beyond the curatorial context as a way to kind of think about like is this on a space of working that hopefully suits the artists as well as the people who work with artists and it kind of touches on some of the maybe questions I have as well maybe there's something in there you can answer um, or respond to it's Just one paragraph. Working with and alongside artists in an embodied entanglement, adjacencies, proximities, and contingencies are set into motion, sustained by an ethos I term slow programming. Its name is a dig at the pervasiveness in the co-opting of curation. Slow programming co-opts the infusion of the slow food movement in aspects of contemporary life. Slow programming is active and is held together through collective labor and bodies over time. Slow programming motivates attentiveness and brings the transformation of awareness into view. Slow programming occupies the time and space in between as well as what it envelops. Slow programming reorders how time is used and felt. As artists, their works and their publics move through the physical space of the gallery and beyond its confines. Slow programming advocates for a, a flexibility around rigid administration, bureaucracy, budgetary allocation, and fiscal projections to take into account how artists work and live in the world. Slow programming acknowledges that institutional memories are developed by people and might be short-lived. Slow programming reshapes infrastructure to participate in a collective past, present, and future where staff, adjuncts, and tenured professors, students, and publics live out histories. Slow programming embraces the volatile instability of institutions as one that is already found in the world, and as such animates pliability to construct with artists in their temporary residence in institutional structures. Slow programming tends to and cares for. Slow programming enlivens contradictions. Slow programming reckons with the capitalist amassing of student debt and teacher debt. Nice,
2: thank you. I I like like uh, this idea of slow programming also that allows hesitation and pause. And uh, could you read the line again about the contradiction? Actually, because I think that is something that one gets caught up with. Hmm.
3: Well, it's quite short, actually, that part. Slow programming tends to and cares for. Slow programming enlivens contradictions. Slow programming reckons with the capitalist amassing of student debt and teacher debt. So what I found is that, you know, a lot of the teachers in the U.S. actually are paying off their student loans and their salaries can't pay for, you know, their student loans and so there's this contradiction there as well where you as a maybe adjunct professor or teacher uh are you know experiencing some of the aftermath of being a student so then there's this sort of like you know um space of yeah contradiction there and that's really something i You know, it was actually really hard to, it is hard to be in that space, hard to work in a space as someone who is still paying off my student loans, where, you know, I think that, that in itself, the structural problem in the U.S. and also the inequity that arises out of that as well.
1: I was just going to mention it very much speaks to what I aspire to. My aspiration is to be more patient, especially with myself, also within my work, which I feel I'm getting very much caught on. It's like very quick modus operandi, quick decisions, moving on to the next thing, which is also like this kind of constant anxiety survival mode of having to produce something just to be able to live, but that's kind of like a very tricky thing to be in. But uh, yeah, the contradictions of slow programming also is to go very slow, you have to work really, really hard to, you know, control, but also to resist the kind of outside demands and expectations and responsibilities too. Mm -hmm. So it was also really, Important, I think, too, or interesting to talk about those contradictions or how to, how to tackle them. It's also interesting to think about the work
2: that you made with the guitar strings, actually, and thinking about slow programming as, that, as the audience or, like, it's sort of like an interesting idea that the audience, like, bumps up against something that is seemingly invisible and then has to slow down and negotiate around it and like how it's really interesting to think about how through the routing of an exhibition you can slow down uh, sort, of, sort of slow down a body and then make uh, and then through that uh, uh, sort of a contemplation and then so how could you then apply that to an organisation or, or an institution or, or like a, a set of operations that allows for the exhibition to come about like, it's, I don't know, I, I don't know if you see see a connection, but it's, to me, like, it, it yeah, it's, it feels very, very much there.
3: Well, there's also, I think it's, you know, thinking about at this particular moment, which has been, I guess, 10 years since the first show at the, the, my apartment, thinking about these, you know, it's, in a way, really split between half like what you might call independent curator, though most of it was really, I think, putting, show, putting things together and half as part of an institution in different countries. Now I feel like I'm in this really third phase and it's a kind of interesting time to talk to you because um, how to proceed in a way, like maybe now I'm more like an interdependent curator. I'm also, you know, questioning the viability of, of, of many things, particularly, you know, in the context of, of the U.S., you know, you almost feel like you have to do something else in conjunction. You, you know, so where, you know, this idea of the interdependency or code dependency coming into play but you're you know you picking up on the slowness isn't you know interesting to for me thinking about the labor in slowness I think there is a contradiction there as well that maybe an impression that slowness it's invisible like that labor is invisible in the slowness which is kinda of interesting because you're actually seeing more of change, but somehow change feels like it could read as like, you know, no labor required because of the word, you know, the idea of slow somehow. Whereas in fact it's, you know, maybe something I want to think about. It's could there be too much slowness where you actually think you are capable of doing more because you're doing less so then you have like a lot you know would i be doing too much of different things that require a slowness am i also needing to think about that um moving forward and then also what is the kind of metabolism of like working as well like once you get used to a kind of slowness do you take on more when you're supposed to not take on more like the idea of not taking on more is sort of like absorbed yeah and then this kind of ties back to the idea of productivity and this kind of like how productive am i
2: um actually i was uh listening to this podcast uh on change i i can't exactly remember the title precisely but it was talking about i think they call it a generative void how we need to i feel like it really is also talking to what you're saying joy and i think that actually we all relate to it in some way that that we need this space to allow for things to bubble up over time so like i guess it's also connected to allowing yourself to be bored or to be restless and being in that space to for then these creative connections to come out rather than um, having to force like, you know, brilliant ideas, like pumping them out, like where they're, you know, something in a factory. And this woman was saying that so much in our life doesn't allow for this generative void. Also it's scary to be in this space of like, Hesitation or pause, and the pandemic is uh, uh, kind of also gave many people this chance to recalibrate. You know, so some people do thrive in the in the pandemic situation, like uh, like Chris, like Chris, in the sense <laughs> of being able to slow down and decide what is important.
1: Not anymore, though. But the you, first few months of the pandemic, but I but, think it's kind of like.
2: But maybe that's because you
1: also had a lot of good ideas in that time yeah i mean for sure yeah. i think it's somehow i may this is my off my own working but definitely i felt like the first few months of the pandemic when everything stopped and it was okay not to answer emails for weeks on I, I i actually had a time of my life in terms of like thinking about what i want to do and how i want to do things and so like a lot of those kind of seeds are potentially planted already or kind of happening or even our podcasts Mm -hmm. sort of came out of this Mm -hmm. kind of discussions and also necessity or kind of a need to talk about art and our practice with others Mm -hmm. um so yeah no, but I think
2: being able to like how can an organisation or uh, like uh, how can we as freelance curators or independence curators also like kind of program into our work this slow slowness that in some ways like it might be easier to do it if you're an institution because it could be like sort of, you know, how um, is it in organic farming? You have to leave a field untended to for a certain amount of time for it to regenerate. Like perhaps an organisation can think about them themselves in a similar way that like every mo- uh, like every twelve months, there's like a two month, uh, slot you know, stopping of practice and seeing what a, what regenerates. But as a fr- as freelancers, how I, I don't know if we can necessarily do that, or or we may have to insist in the way yeah. that we can't go like design our contracts or how we decide to take on projects that we go, okay, like I have got seven projects, you know, after they're all done, I will take Mm. six months off, which is also a luxury somehow.
1: I mean, hard to afford that even, you know, it's like sort of at the end, it also breaks down to that and also breaks down to the fact that the art world tends to operate in a way that once you disappear for a longer period of time, you are kind of discredited by default.
3: I think, yeah, I think the resource sharing with, you know, the transparency that, you know, that it's, um gaining support across the kind of institutional roles, like in terms of salary transparency. In the US, there was, you know, this giant Google Doc spreadsheet that some people share, but also The other parts is transparency for, like, as independent, like, curators, like, you know, how do you, how much do you ask for? What's fair? What did other people get? And, you know, those things, I think, still are so hard to come by. And then there, yeah, it's almost, I think that's the next, you know, hopefully there's a space for that sharing to take place. So that one can, you know, like not plan in a way that isn't realistic or ended up, yeah, just to have that information prepared. Like I think even for people who are starting, starting out and then be like, oh, this publication pays this much for this, how many words? So, you know, yes, do write, you know, do that. And then what do you aim for and how many can you do? And you know, just to be kind of realistic about
2: that, you know. Yeah, also like with this idea of being transparent and resource sharing, we were just earlier talking about curatorial collectives or collective working and and we propose perhaps that's one way of accruing time, you know, so that a pro- like projects can still be maintained and that or like, you know, new projects can happen whilst somebody can step back and um, you know take the time that they need but also it leads me from what we are now talking about to think about what in our previous interview with Lara she was talking about how for her right now in Documenta they have many different working groups I don't know how many people are working there in total but there are a certain amount of people per working group that allows for you know, if you need to care uh, care for somebody, whether a child or otherwise, you can take the time to step away or bring them into the into, into the process. Or you know, however, and 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 I, and I it is interesting. Like rather than maybe necessarily talk, uh, creating, you know, uh, a, a global collective of curators, but the fact that we can think that perhaps we can start through perhaps the podcast or through. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, deprofessionalize or de- removing this veneer yeah being uh, like may, perhaps asking somebody to step in for you whilst you take the time like i never it never occurred to me that i could do that actually you know mm-hmm. like it's interesting idea actually and through that you are then perhaps creating other opportunities for other, for people that may not be able to get them. It would uh, also remove a certain kind of uh, stockpiling or uh, opportunity hoarding, which hmm. happens. Also fresh ideas would come out. It's an interesting idea. How can we make that happen? <laughs> yeah. I think perhaps it's a good note to end on. We've really covered a lot. and in- Well,
3: there are There's one question here that maybe I can answer to end it, which is, if you weren't a curator, what would you do? I actually, like, would love to be... And maybe this, you know, definitely should be kept on the podcast so people can maybe ask me to do it. I'd love to be a still photographer on a film. Like, that's... Like, I, you know, love film and but how i want to engage with film would be you know that like but i think that stills the stills would not be very quote-unquote representative of the film in in a kind of direct way so but maybe i should just look for that opportunity to get on film sets
1: (laughs) fingers crossed someone Yeah. yeah
3: job wanted yeah Yeah. job Job wanted. wanted
2: all right well thanks so much joey thank you so much
3: thank you and yeah thanks so much for your time
2: i hope this message finds you well
1: if you would like to know more about joey's work we recommend reading his piece on slow programming titled finding the core our institutions ourselves published in shelf documents art library as practice co-edited by Joy with Heide Hendricks and Elizabeth Haynes.
2: In the next episode, we interview Claire Butcher, educator and arts practitioner who has recently returned to the title of curator as way of positioning her practice. We discuss the difference between curating and arts education in larger-scale events and also the urgencies of art education for the future of art and curatorial practice.
1: If you have feedback, you can email us at I hope this message finds you well at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at I hope this message and find us on SoundCloud under the same handle. Our jingle was by the band difficult and sound engineering was done by Nick Thomas.
0: Hope well finds message. You finds message. This message. I well you finds you. I hope, well, hope. Message this. I use this. Well, finds you. Finds you hope. Use this, I. Well. Hope, well, finds message. You finds message. This message, I. Well, you finds you. I hope, well, hope. Message this. I, you, this, this, well, fine